In its 13th annual look, the Government Accountability Office found that major programs of NASA tend to be late and over budget. But two programs account for most of the delays in the cost overruns. For the latest, we turn to the GAO's Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisition Issues, Bill Russell. Bill, good to have you back. Nice to be here, Tom. And let's talk about NASA. You look at it every year, and there's about, what, seven or eight major programs that account for most of the activity at NASA? Right. This year, we actually took a look at 33 different projects. Some of those are in the early stages called formulation, where they're still trying to figure out the exact requirements. But the rest of those 20 are actually in development. So they're bending metal, they're building the systems, and then getting them ready for launch. And you found that, for the most part, nothing is really ever exactly on time, according to the schedule? That's right. Just since last year's assessment in 2020, costs increased by about $1.1 billion over the portfolio of programs, and schedule was delayed by almost three years. 37 months accumulated in these 33 systems. That's right. Do you ever wonder why NASA just doesn't figure out what their timeline is and then add 20% and then they'd always be on time? You know, it's interesting. That's one of the things we looked at, too, in this year's review was the impact of COVID. And what we found is a number of the programs, at least for the initial impacts from the pandemic, were able to use some of their schedule and cost reserves to get through 2020. The full effects have not yet been realized. So we're going to watch that for next year to see if there are some cost and schedule delays just from everything shutting down during the pandemic. Yeah, NASA was, I guess, forced to work as remotely as everyone else then. That's right. And many of these projects, you say bending metal and so forth, they're actually fabricating. They do a lot of fabrication in secure and in sterile, almost fab-like facilities, correct? So that's a hard thing to do when we can't do it remotely. Absolutely. You know, if you think about some of these systems, they're very complex, one-of-a-kind just take the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to be the follow-on system to Hubble. You know, that has a sun shield that's one of a kind, you know, has to get folded in a particular way and work perfectly when it launches. Or some of the systems to return to the moon under the Artemis mission, you know, these are human-rated systems that are going to be carrying astronauts eventually to the moon. So lots of details, and they have to be done in specialized environments. And you stated in the report, most projects met a GAO best practice related to technology maturity, but few met a best practice related to uh, demonstrating a stable design. What does that exactly mean? Well, for technology maturity, we were happy to see that 10 of the 14 projects that had reached that stage in their development were using mature technologies, which basically means that they have demonstrated that they can operate in the relevant environment in which they're intended. So that's a good sign that they're going to work during the launch and the later stages of development. When it comes to design stability, that's where basically the best practice is for 90% of your drawings, engineering drawings, specific uh, details about the system to be ready to go at a key decision point. And what we found is on average, the projects came in at about 70% of their drawings being ready. The risk there is if you have to make a change to the design later in the acquisition process, that's going to usually equate to an increase in costs and potentially schedule. So the more stable the design could be and at an earlier junction in the acquisition process, the better. 
We're speaking with Bill Russell, Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisition Issues at the Government Accountability Office. But I think the most interesting or compelling finding is that two of the 33 projects, namely the Space Telescope, the new one that is yet to launch, really. It's been in development for a long time. And also the heavy lift STS system designed to get people to the moon, I guess, eventually in Mars. Those accounted for years and many billions of dollars of overrun. Let's talk about the James Webb Telescope first. That's about 10 years overdue, isn't it? That's right. I think at least seven years over their initial schedule estimates and the cost have almost doubled over that time as well. And that had a big impact on the overall NASA acquisition portfolio. And then you mentioned the other system, Space Launch System, which is the rocket that's going to be used to carry the astronauts back to the moon, hopefully in 2024. But just between those two systems, that accounted for $7.1 billion of the total $9.6 billion in cost growth across the entire portfolio of NASA major projects. So it did have a big impact. Those two systems also accounted for about half of the cumulative schedule delays as well. Fortunately, James Webb Space Telescope is scheduled to launch later this year, if it can stay on schedule, and the Space Launch System, too, has gotten to a good base where it's done some of its initial green run testing, is what they call it, where they actually fill it with liquid oxygen and other fuel and burn it for the amount of time that it's going to need for the launch. So those two systems are getting closer to launch, which should help going forward with the NASA portfolio. With respect to the rocket engines, I think they had some trouble the first times they tried to test fire them on a test bed. It was supposed to go eight minutes or something, but it only went 30 seconds. They had issues showing up, but they seem to have gotten around those at this point. Yeah. In the spring, they were able to redo that test and it was successful. So that's a good sign for a space launch system. And what is the issue with the telescope? Because that is almost a decade since they said it would be launched and billions and billions, as you mentioned. And yet this is a static thing that is put on a rocket and then goes up and turns on. I mean, static in the sense, I don't think there's too many moving parts on it. But what's been the essential issue with that project? Some of the systems are very complex within that space telescope. If you think about the detectors, there's an elaborate sun shield, which unfurls as you're in space. And just getting all of those elements right has taken longer than expected, and obviously the costs have increased due to that. But it's a unique one-of-a-kind system. If you think about the images that came from the Hubble James Webb Space Telescope works, you know, that's just the next generation of being able to explore the universe. But it has come with a significant amount of schedule delays and cost increases. And of course, behind all of these projects, especially the telescope, there is the possibility that things could go wrong in launching it into space. And then all that work would have been for naught on that model, that copy. If a disaster should happen with launching it, do they have sufficient blueprints and technical, I guess, learning curve knowledge that they could build a second one relatively quickly based on what it took to build the first one? Well, we recently reported on the just the James Webb Space Telescope, and that effort will entail a number of risks to get through the launch, right? A lot has to go right for the launch. And then once it's actually in orbit and it's fixed orbit, it's going to carry a few risks too that NASA has worked to at least decrease the likelihood of those occurring. But some of them will potentially 
make the mission unsuccessful if they were to occur. We did report that NASA has developed contingency plans for, for some of those risks to try to minimize the impact. But, you know, going to space is hard and some of these projects are very complex and one of a kind. Um, NASA has tried to manage those risks, but there will be some that remain even after launch for James Webb. Do you ever think that maybe they should go ahead and build a second James Webb anyway and launch it also? And maybe for 25% of the cost on the uh, margin of the full project, they'd have two of them. (laughs) Right. That's a good point. But, I mean, if you look to the first one, you know, that was years over schedule and almost double the cost for billions of dollars. So there's definitely a a trade-off there in terms of cost and efficiency to building a second one. All right. Well, yes, plus you have to get congressional approval. (laughs) They may not exactly have the appetite (laughs) for that. But otherwise, these programs look like they really are coming to the point where they'll be there, the STS and the uh, James Webb. Absolutely. All right. Bill Russell is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisition Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Great to talk to you. We'll post this interview along with a link to the latest report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness Uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned 
that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy, and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic 
uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.